Let's get into the word, the text, as Paul just read, uh, Exodus 23, 20-33. The title, Pay Attention, Part 2, last week, Pay Attention. Uh, it's from the main verb that we see in our text, shamar. It means observe, obey, listen, pay attention. The big idea, the Lord saves his people to serve him. The Lord saves his people to serve him, and this for his glory. Amen? Um, let's begin with this. Why do, and, and kids, you're not allowed to answer this, why do parents warn their children? Don't touch that. Don't get into cars with strangers. Why? Because we want to spoil all their fun. Kids may feel that way, but that's not why. We do it. Why? Because we, we love our children. We want to protect them. The warnings themselves are evidence of a parent's love for their children. If parents did not warn their children, I think others would say, you must not love your kids. You let them do whatever they want. They run amok. It's chaos in your home. Your kids are always ending up in the hospital. We warn our children because we love them. Throughout Scripture, the Lord warns, He warns His rescued people, not because He is out to make life harder for His people, but because He loves His people and desires for them to be holy and obedient and to have joy. Amen? So I'm thankful for the warnings of Scripture. Why do I share that? I typically place in your handout the structure of the text so you can kind of see how it all fits together. I did not do that this week, but I'm going to tell you now how our passage is structured. So if you want to write it down, feel free to. Verses 20 and 21a, so the first half of 21. So verse 20 and the first half of 21, the Lord's provision and his call to obedience. The Lord's provision and his call to obedience. The second half of 21, we'll call it 21b, we have the Lord's gracious warning. Okay, the Lord's gracious warning. So, verses 20 and 21, the Lord's provision and his call to obedience. Verse 21b, the Lord's gracious warning. And then the meat of our text, the majority of our text, verses 22 to 31, we have the Lord's good promises. The Lord's good promises. And that makes up most of our passage. God promises to provide for his people and then, at the very end, verses 32 and 33, again, we have the Lord's gracious warning. Warnings abound. Our passage is bookended by warnings. But again, warnings demonstrate what of God? He, he loves us. He loves his people. So again, our passage is bookended by warnings. And I would call these gracious warnings from God. These warnings are his gracious reminder for his people to look to him and not to the world. Our passage contains covenant language. This is a covenant book. I talked about this weeks ago when we looked at the Ten Commandments. I gave you the example, and this is good going forward to remember this. What would happen in ancient times is a mighty king, a big king, like the big dog, right, in the ancient Near East would rescue a smaller kingdom from impending military threats. You've got a small kingdom out there, and they're surrounded by their enemy nations. They're calling out for help. Big king steps in, sends his military, 
overthrows those enemies, rescues the smaller kingdom. What would happen next? Well, the big king, we'll call him the suzerain, that's a big word, would enter into a covenant with the smaller king, the vassal, okay? Sorry, my voice. Um, There would be stipulations, okay? You're now, little kingdom, going to give your allegiance to us. But guess what? We're going to protect you. We're going to provide for you. We're going to watch over you. But if you're disobedient, there's going to be curses. If you're faithful and obedient, there's going to be blessings, blessings. We see that with God in his interaction with Israel, right? Again, these warnings. Man, my voice. I'm sorry. It's not like I'm hitting puberty for the first time. I promise you that's not the case. I'm a little embarrassed right now. Some of you are probably thankful because I can't get too loud today. These warnings were a gracious reminder of their, Israel's, new life and what it entailed. So again, here, the Lord is doing something very similar. What was common practice in the ancient Near East, God is doing it here. And yet, and this is the distinction, the focus is not so much here on Israel's obedience or their disobedience, but the Lord and his gracious and generous provision, what the Lord would do and what the Lord would provide for his rescued people. The conquest of Canaan, God's people were promised a place, the promised land that is previewed in our passage. It represented God taking his people into the promised land represented a return to the garden, namely life with God, a life accompanied by abundant provision, bread and water, a removal of sickness, healthy babies, praise God for healthy babies, a removal of their enemies, the Lord's ongoing protection and presence. I mean, this is sweet. What a beautiful picture. This is what God is holding before his people. But such a life required their obedience. Israel had been saved, not because of this, right? They were saved by God's grace. They were saved for this. But they would forfeit this if they chose to go the way of the world and not the way of the Lord. If they chose to listen to another's voice and not the voice of God. So they're warned. They're warned. Israel, I've saved you for this. But if you go after foreign gods, you're going to lose this. Now, who is the dominant subject in our passage? Who is the one speaking and acting and doing? And we, we could say this is true for all of Scripture. Who's the dominant figure? Who's the hero of the text? It's the Lord. Who sends an angel before Israel to guard them and to lead them to the land of promise? The Lord. Who will blot out Israel's enemies? The Lord. Who will provide for his people? The Lord. Who will be with his people? The Lord. Who warns his people? The Lord, right? The Lord has done it and the Lord will do it. So our passage, if we were going to summarize it, is a call to trust the Lord. It's a call to come under his word. So what do we learn in our passage today? What is our 
trajectory? Where are we headed? What do we learn specifically about God? Four things. Here are them. Here's a preview. You don't have to write these down now. I'll take them one at a time. But here's where we're headed. Number one, the Lord reveals himself. Number two, the Lord fights. Number three, the Lord provides. And number four, the Lord warns. All this for his people and all this for his glory. All right, so number one, four points this morning. Number one, the Lord reveals himself to his people. Let that marinate for a moment. The Lord reveals himself. Does he have to do that? Did he have to do that? Do we deserve that? The fact that God makes himself known to us, the answer in Spanish is no. No. Verses 20 and 21, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. I, I, I. The Lord is speaking. The Lord is doing. Verse 21, Pay attention to him. Pay attention. There's that verb again that we saw in verse 13 last week. Pay attention. Last week it was pay attention to his word. This week, pay attention to him. Pay attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. Why? For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Whoa. God's name is in him. Who is this? We'll get there. John Piper says, we know because he reveals. Why do we know? Because God chooses to reveal himself. The Lord reveals himself. What grace. Amen? Oh, friends, what grace that God makes himself known to us. Isn't that incredible? That's staggering that God, the God of the universe, makes himself known to us. Notice what he'll do, though, in our passage. Notice what he'll do and how Israel is to respond to him. So first, an angel, a malach, a messenger even, will be sent before Israel to guard them on the way and to bring them to the place prepared for them by the Lord. Second, Israel is commanded to pay attention to him. Okay, so the Lord is going to send his messenger, his angel, to guide his people, to bring them to the land prepared. Second, the Lord commands you are to pay attention to him, listen to him, obey his voice, don't rebel against him. Why? For he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. This is a big theme in Exodus. Here we have another example of theophany, or more specifically, a Christophany, a visible manifestation or revelation of the Son of God, Jesus himself. This is seen in the language at the end of verse 21. Not only will he not pardon your sins if you rebel, but my name is in him. This is a staggering claim. God says, my name is in him, in this messenger. The name in the ancient Near East represented the deity himself. R. Allen Cole. I love that. R. Allen Cole. I don't even know what R stands for. Maybe Robert. Maybe Richard. We'll never know. But he's a great Old Testament scholar, and this is what he writes. My name is in him seems to translate the messenger into the supernatural realm. For God's name is the equivalent of his revealed nature. So this was more than just divine 
authorization. This conveyed divine identity. The name stood for the person, all that he was, his character and his attributes. One brother says, this is why the angel can command complete obedience and trust. Why? Because his presence is the equivalent of the presence of the Lord himself. This mysterious figure, an angel, or better translated, a messenger, is to be identified with the Lord. Much like what we've seen already, the Malik Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, is the Lord himself. We saw that where? Back in Burning Bush. Let's review it. Why not? Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. There, this mysterious figure, the Malak Yahweh, that's Hebrew for the messenger of the Lord, or the messenger who is the Lord. It could even be translated that way. Exodus 3, 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. Who appeared? Angel of the Lord. But then, two verses later, verse 4, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Who called out of the bush? God did. Moses, Moses. And then two verses later, Exodus 3, 6, And he said from the bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at, at God. The angel or messenger of the Lord and the Lord are one and the same. And this is further evidenced in verse 22. Verse 22. This is our passage now. We're back in our passage. In verse 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, his voice, what I say, the messenger's voice, and what the Lord says are equivalent. They're the same. Now, finally, we must note the divine prerogative. The angel has, the messenger has the authority to pardon sin, your transgression. If you go to Mark 2, 1 to 12, in the Gospel of Mark, one of my favorite passages, I, I've preached this text on three different continents. If you ask me, when I was in Albania or Africa, hey, I need you to preach in 10 minutes, what passage am I going to preach? Mark 2, 1 to 12. It's just going to happen, I promise you. In Mark 2, 1 to 12, Jesus heals the paralytic, right? Four friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. He's in a home. They can't get inside the home because it's overcrowded. So they get on top of the house. They make a hole. I would have loved to have seen this. And they lower the man down. Everyone's expecting Jesus to do what first? Jesus has a reputation up to this point of doing what? He heals the sick and the lame. But what does he do first? He notes the faith of the man and those who brought him, and by their faith he forgives his sin. And are the religious leaders like, yes, amen, no. They're upset, they're angry, because they realize only God has the authority to forgive sin. Well, of course, who is Jesus? He is he's God. So Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. This messenger of the Lord, or the messenger who is the Lord, has the authority to do what? To pardon or forgive sin. The Father sends his messenger, and not just any messenger, I believe the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, to lead and to guide his people. 
you know, Christ, Jesus, keeps showing up in the Old Testament, <laughs> especially in the book of Exodus, especially in the context of rescue and provision. Why? Because God is readying us. He's preparing the way. He's setting the scene. He's previewing the greater work of rescue and provision, the, the cross, the cross. Now, as we've seen already, the purpose of theophany, a visible manifestation of the presence of the Lord, was to instill confidence in God's people, to comfort them, and to encourage them. The fact that God shows himself, he shows up visibly, that would encourage them, amen? It would comfort them, it would give them confidence. The God who makes these promises, he shows himself to us, he's with us. All right, what else do we learn about the Lord in our passage? Number one, the Lord reveals himself to his people. What grace? Number two, the Lord fights for his people. Some of our guys just woke up. They're fight. All right, it's going to get interesting now. The Lord fights for his people. All right, verse 22. God says, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I, I, the Lord says, blot them out. And then verses 27 to 30. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Who's going to do this? The Lord, who promises to do this. The Lord. And I will send hornets before you. Not Hudson hornets. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will, in case you forgot, not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out. How many times do we see the verb, I will drive them out? I will drive them out. I will drive them out. God is saying, I will fight for my people. Amen? I got you. Watch me work. <laughs> if you know God's word, you know that this is a major theme in Scripture. And two things are emphasized here. How many? Two. The fact that God fights for his people emphasizes two things. One, the call to trust the Lord. God is saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fight. Let me do it. And second, the purpose being his glory. Why does God fight for his people? Because it provides an opportunity for him to get what? Glory. Glory. So the Lord, because he fights for his people, is both trustworthy and glory worthy. He's trustworthy and glory worthy. He fights on behalf of his people in this for his glory. The Lord's victory in battle provides an opportunity for his glory his majesty and wonder, his awesome character to be revealed. Whenever, if you study Israel's history, whenever enemies mount up, what happens? There's the temptation to handle it independently of God, to rely on one's army and weaponry. And this occurs due to two reasons. We were guilty of the same thing. We fail to trust the Lord, and we want the, what do we love? We want the glory. We are glory stealers 
by nature. We fail to trust the Lord, and we want the glory. Now, the Lord's commitment to fight for his people reveals several things, and I want to give you three. The Lord's commitment, he promises, I'm going to blot him out. I'm going to do it. I'm going to blot him out. Watch me work. It reveals three things. Not more than three, but I want to highlight three. Number one, first, victory belongs to the Lord. Who does victory belong to? Why? Why? As we just saw, this for his glory. God wants the glory. God deserves the glory. Second, God's rescued people are to fight for holiness. God rescues his people. He fights for his people for the purpose of them being holy or set apart. Verses 23 and 24. When my angel goes before you, and bring, dude, this is a great text, listen to this, and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. If you've been saved by trusting in Jesus, yes, Christ has done it all. Amen? Christ did it all. And yet, we, as those who are rescued in Christ, must walk with him. And this involves continually making war on our sin and getting rid of idols in our lives. I love that Israel was commanded to smash literally smash their idols. They were called, commanded by God, to smash the idols of the pagan nations, lest they become a stumbling stone to them. They were to rid the land that God would give them of any pagan influence. Just get rid of it. Get rid of it, because it will bring you in. It will suck you in. I'm reminded of several passages here in Scripture. You can write these down. Proverbs 5.8. Matthew 5.29 and 1 John 5.21. Matthew 5.8. Keep your way far from her. Who's her? Who's that? That's the adulteress. She's bad news, guys. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Stay away from her. She's dangerous. She'll kill you. Matthew 5.29. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And I love how 1 John ends. This is 1 John 5.21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And then I feel like he just walked away. That was it. I've taught on that before. But I just love how, I love how 1 John ends. And if you know the letter, it makes sense. But for some, it's just like anticlimactic. Like, what? Keep yourself from idols? <laughs> I'm out. Um, Here's the point. Brothers and sisters, stay away from sin. Disassociate yourself from those things, even relationships that have the potential to lure you away from the Lord. Take extreme measures to get rid of things in your life that are competing for your affections. Idols that will inevitably bring you into sin. Now, Things that become our idols are not always inherently bad, right? I mean, is our family bad? Is our job bad? Is money inherently bad? No, the love of money is bad or evil. 
idols become idols. Things become idols when we make them ultimate things. Or as one brother has written, when we make good things, God things. Don't turn good things into God things. We must constantly be at work detecting and destroying idols in our lives. How do we do that? Use the word? Use the church? Asking fellow believers to help you identify things in your life that you're putting over the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the first thing we've learned here, right? The Lord's commitment to fight for his people reveals three things. First, victory belongs to the Lord. Number two, God's rescued people are to fight for holiness. Number three, God's rescued people are to worship the Lord. So this is a sub-point um, under number two. So this is not number three. This is sub-point three under point two. Come on, guys. Third, God's rescued people are to worship the Lord. The Lord fights for us, and we worship him in response. The Lord saves us to serve him. The Lord saves us to serve him. The Lord saves us to, one more time, the Lord saves us to, to serve him. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. Now, the word for serve in Hebrew, avav, means to worship, right? If the Lord has saved you, the appropriate response, if the Lord has fought for you, and he did at the cross, right? You do what? You serve him, you worship him with your life. In sum, the Lord provides the victory. The Lord fights for his people, amen? The Lord provides the victory. And those who benefit from his victory are called to be holy and to worship him with their whole lives. And this for his what? For his glory. What else? Now, this is point number three. This is point number three. The Lord provides for his people. The Lord provides for his people. What was number one? He reveals. Number two? Fights. Number three? He provides. He reveals himself. He fights for his people, and he provides for his people. I mean, how cool is this? God does all these things for his people. Amen? Verses 25 and 26, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So not only not only does he provide them with victory over their enemies, but a land of promise and all the things they need for life and sustenance, food and water, children, right? Progeny and long life. But we must remember that these blessings are, it's a covenant. And what kind of covenant is it? It's a conditional covenant. These blessings are conditional. Namely, they depend upon Israel's loyalty to the Lord. God's desire was to bless his people, but his people must be holy, set apart to him. Now, this is what we have to remember. <clears throat> the promises of this passage pertained to a specific people at a specific time and a specific purpose, right? We, everybody say we, we are not Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, we are not promised health and wealth for our obedience. We right now are not gearing up to go into Canaan, are we? Of course not. 
Rather, as the church, we, I say we, okay, here's us, we are promised opposition and suffering now. But then, everybody say, but then, in glory, you don't have to keep repeating, in glory, resurrection bodies in a new heaven, in a new earth, free of sickness, pain, and death. That is ours. Our passage looks to a greater land and greater blessings found in Jesus Christ. Amen? In Christ, we have all these wonderful blessings. Let me just give you a taste. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if you read on, what do these entail? These blessings include adoption into the family of God, redemption, forgiveness. All right, point number one. The Lord reveals himself to his people. Point number two. The Lord fights for his people. Point number three. The Lord provides for his people. And number four, what bookends our text? The Lord warns his people. That's our final point. The Lord warns his people. Again, as mentioned before, I started with this. Our passage is bookended by warnings from the Lord. Warnings intended to lead God's people away from sin and toward the path of righteousness. Verse 21. Here's the first. Pay attention to him. Who? The Lord. I, I believe, again, this is a Christophany. This angel or, again, messenger who has God's name in him, I believe is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. Why? For he will not pardon your transgression. That's a warning. If you transgress, if you sin, if you rebel, you will not be what? Pardoned. You're going to be in trouble. For my name is in him. And then we go to the very end of our passage, verses 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. God's saying, I made a covenant with you. Don't make a covenant with them, the pagan nations. Why? He goes on, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God is saying a failure, again, the Lord warns his people, a failure to obey will be met with severe consequences. Now these warnings were for Israel's bad or good. Surely they were for Israel's good. The Lord knew that the pagan nations and their false gods would be a snare to Israel to draw them away from him. Let's come back to the verb, because this is pay attention part two, so we've got to talk about it. Pay attention. We saw this already in verse 13. The verb to pay attention, pay attention fans, hey, pay attention. But guys, pay attention. Pay attention. The verb pay attention is used once again, this time, however, with the object being the divine messenger of the Lord, whose words would be the very words of God. Now, this verb, pay attention, as we saw last week, it's from the Hebrew shamar. It means to keep watch to guard, to observe, even to obey. When something is highly valuable, we watch over it, we guard it. 
God's word, his commands, his truth is highly valuable. Amen? Here, however, the object of the verb is not the word, but a person. The messenger of the Lord, the word giver. The Lord is saying, listen to him, because he will speak my word. Now, this is cool. You ready? The Father says something very similar of Jesus in Luke 9, 35, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember what he says? What does he say? He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, whether this was wise or not, I was once asked to speak in Boston to a South Korean youth group. And I preached that text for an hour. And then I ate a bunch of kimchi. It was a great day. That's the story. All right. I just remembered it when I thought about Luke 9. Um, Yeah. Luke 9, 35. So again, here, regarding the messenger of the Lord, the Father says, listen, pay attention to him. In Luke 9, 35, of Jesus, the Father says, hey, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. Again, I wonder who this angel or messenger of the Lord could be. Who do you think? These warnings don't merely appear in the Old Testament, by the way. They appear in the New Testament as well and are used by God to help his people persevere. We need these warnings, don't we? Are you thankful for the warnings of Scripture? The Lord uses them to guard us and protect us. Galatians 5, 2-4. Let me give you two examples of warnings in the New Testament for God's people that the Lord uses as his gracious means for us to persevere in the faith. Galatians 5, 2-4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You, will be, you who will be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And we know that the people of Christ will persevere to the end. Amen? But the Lord uses these warnings as his means of grace for us to persevere. I'm thankful for the warnings. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thank God for the warnings of Scripture. Now, what do these things have in common? All these things, these four points that we just looked at, God reveals himself, God fights for his people, God provides for his people, God warns his people. What do these things have in common? They all share a common purpose. Why does God make himself known? Why does God fight for his people? Why does God provide graciously for his people? Why does God warn his people? His glory. Why? His glory. God reveals himself for his, for his glory. He fights for us for his, his glory. He provides for us for his glory. So we can say, wow, God, you're so awesome. You're so good. And he warns us for his 
his glory. What do these things teach us about God? I want to start with point number four. The Lord warns us and then move all the way back to point number one. What do these things individually teach us about God? First, the presence of warnings. And as we've seen, these warnings appear in the Old Testament and the New. These warnings reveal God's grace, his mercy, and his love. Because the Lord loves his people, he provides them with numerous warnings intended to help them follow him. Praise God for the warnings. Amen? Second, the reality of God's provision reveals his compassion, his goodness, and his generosity. The fact that God meets our needs reveals that he's generous, he's compassionate, he's good. Third, the victory of the Lord, the fact that the Lord fights for his people reveals his power and might. God says, watch me, I will do it. I mean, think about the cross. Do we add to the cross? Do we contribute to the cross? No, he did it all from start to finish for his what? For his glory and at the cross. And whenever God fights for his people, it reveals his might, his power, his faithfulness, and his glory. And finally, where we started, what was the first point? God reveals himself good. The revelation of God in time and space reveals his kindness and his commitment to his people. Now, every week in Exodus, we end with this question. How does our passage point to Christ and the gospel? Now, many today in our culture, in our society, are tempted to drive a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, even arguing that the God of the Old Testament is different or distinct from the God revealed in the New. This is Marcionism. This is a second century heresy, and this is a very sophomoric definition. But basically, Marcion said, you know what? The God of the Old Testament is bloodthirsty and wrathful and vindictive, but the God of the New is gracious and merciful and kind, so let's get rid of the God of the Old and stick with the God of the New. But if you read Scripture, what you see is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New are the the same. (laughs) Come on. I mean, what did we just learn about God? He provides for his people. I mean, let's go back to chapter 12 of Exodus, the Passover. He provides a substitute, a sacrifice for his people. Did he rescue Israel because they were good? No, it's because he's gracious and merciful. And God keeps showing himself to his people. God fights for his people. God reveals himself and provides himself for his people. Well, what will become of Israel? Again, our passage is a preview. It's it's looking forward to what God would do. But what happens to Israel? Israel would inevitably fail. They would not heed the warnings. Despite God's goodness and grace, his provision and presence, and his protection and promise to fight for his people, Israel would foolishly turn away from the living God to lifeless idols. Rather than becoming like the Lord, they would become like the surrounding pagan nations. Israel, therefore, needed a perfect what? A perfect substitute. One who would do and be all that Israel could not do and be because of sin. And if you read Isaiah, oh, Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 
speak of the suffering servant who will do and be all that Israel as a nation was called to do and be, but could not do and be because of sin. And in comes Christ. In comes Christ. So again, how does Exodus 23, 20 to 33 point to Jesus? What we've learned in our passage today, at least what I hope we've learned, is that the Lord reveals himself, the Lord sends divine help, he fights for his people, he is present with his people. All of this prepares us for who? For Jesus. Let me give you five points here, how our passage points to Christ. Number one, the Father sends the Son. The Father sends the, he's ascending God, amen? John three sixteen. I know you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave. He handed over his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, die eternally, but have forever or eternal life. The God of the Bible is a sending God. He sends prophets. He sends priests. He sends kings. He sends good news messengers. He sends rain. He sends bread. And most importantly, he sent his and his son. Jesus, number two, comes to his own. Jesus comes to his own. John 1, 9 to 13, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So again, how does our passage point to Christ? The Father sends the Son. Jesus comes to his own. Number three, Jesus has the authority to forgive what? Sin. Mark 2, 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Number four, Jesus fights for his own. He doesn't just come for his own. He fights for his own. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed. Ooh, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In who? In Christ. Jesus fights for his own. The Father sends the Son. Jesus comes to his own. Number three, Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Number four, Jesus fights for his own. And then finally, Jesus goes with his own. What was the promise regarding the Malach Yahweh, the angel or messenger of the Lord? He's going to go with you. He's going to guide you. He's going to bring you into the land I've promised to you. Matthew 28, 20, and behold, Jesus, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus goes with his own. What do we see here? What don't we see here? And how does it relate to Jesus? I'll be done in one minute and 37 seconds. What do we see here? What don't we see here? And how does it relate to Jesus? What we see in our passage, in all of Scripture, is that obedience is not required for a people entering into a relationship with God. Okay? That's important. Obedience is not required for a people entering into a relationship with God. God rescued Israel, bringing them into a relationship with himself by his grace alone. And yet, I hope you're expecting this, and yet, obedience is certainly required in order 
for a healthy relationship with God to be maintained. Amen? He doesn't save us by obedience. He saves us for obedience. That's a really important distinction. He doesn't save us by our obedience. He saves us by whose obedience? Oh, Jesus. But he does save us for obedience. I love John 14, 15. This is Clark's special verse that I recite to him every night at bedtime and I pray over him. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think I've said this at least 1,372 times since I've been here at Kelty's. I've been counting. I said it many times last Wednesday when we were teaching through Psalm 34. The gospel provides both forgiveness and... Still don't got it, so... There it is. Okay, thank you, Cody. Transformation, 1,373. The gospel provides both forgiveness and transformation, both a perfect life and a sacrificial death. Through Jesus... Sinners who by grace trust in him are forgiven and transformed to live differently. If we read Ephesians 2, I love Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. We learn that God saves by what? By our works? No, by his grace and our faith response to Christ. And yet he saves us for good works that he's prepared in advance. And if you keep reading on in Ephesians, we can do these good works by the Spirit that He gives us. Amen? What does the gospel provide? Forgiveness and transformation. What did Israel need? What do we need? A substitute. That's the, the, that's the cry of Exodus. We need a substitute. And who is our substitute? Who's the one that lived for us and died for us and was raised for us and ascended for us? Jesus, amen? And if you trust in Jesus, there is both forgiveness and transformation to live for God with God's people. So as far as practice steps, I got 10 seconds left. Number one, I went over a minute and 37. I know I did. Yeah, I meant to say 237. Number one, trust in Jesus for salvation. Trust in Jesus for salvation. Get off the throne, You cannot save yourself. You're not a good king. You will rule your life into the ground, into hell. So get off the throne. Trust in Jesus. Admit you're a sinner. Turn from your sin. Embrace Jesus. Say, Jesus, you're my king. You're my Lord. You're my savior. I'm a sinner. I can do nothing to save myself. But because of your perfect life, your sacrificial death on the cross, you took the punishment. You lived the life I couldn't live. God is holy and demands a perfect life. We can't pay that. Christ did. But secondly, what? Because we can't live a perfect life, in fact, we've all made a failure of our lives, we deserve punishment. Christ took that as well. And then he rose again, proving that what he did worked and blazed the trail back to God for us. So trust in Jesus for salvation. Number two, if you have trusted in Jesus, serve him with your whole life with his church, not for your glory, but for his. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in our passage, we are reminded that God, Lord, you're good, you're faithful, you're kind, you're compassionate, you're loving, and we stand in awe of who you are. God, we, we learned together in your word this morning that 
you reveal yourself to your people. You fight for your people. You provide for your people and you warn your people all for your glory and our good. I pray for those in this place who have trusted in Jesus that they would long to serve him with their whole lives with your people, the church. And I pray for those who have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus. Holy Spirit, give them new hearts. Regenerate their hearts. Open their blind eyes to see the matchless beauty and wonder of Jesus, to see their sin in light of the Savior and move them, Holy Spirit, to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. And I pray that all of us in this place would love Jesus, treasure Jesus, and be committed to following Jesus with your church and be committed to proclaiming Jesus to the lost and dying world around us. God, you're worthy of our lives. We give you our lives. Use this time for our edification and your glory. Father, make us more like your son. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a good king. We love you and ask all these things in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.